All right, welcome to Just a Book Club, where we talk about books that are just books. They're not literature, they're just books. Yeah, there's nothing valuable in them whatsoever, and we have nothing to talk about for the next half hour or so. Let's get into it. And uh, let's get into it. Today, we are discussing book six, The Capture. Brief summary, as always. Uh, During an attempt to destroy a Yerk breeding pool, Jake is possessed by the Yerk, who formerly had control of his brother. The team catches on fairly quickly and hides him from others, while Axe takes his place. After multiple escape attempts, the Yerk can no longer survive away from its habitat and dies. Which is a really short summary for a really intense story. I think. The thing that seemed really interesting was how this book really centers around helplessness in a couple of different ways. And and we've talked about how, you know, you're you're safe as long as you have your friends. Or not you're safe, but you're not alone, right? Re- regardless of of what you're going through, someone else is going through it too, right? Regardless of of what's happening, no one is alone. And and how important of a theme that is. And I think that's especially reiterated in this story about uh, when one of our heroes is captured and has no choice but to hope that his friends, one, figure it out, and two, can do something about it. And this is the leader figure, right? He's, he's touted as being the one in charge, and he doesn't see himself that way. But everyone else sees him that way. And so what do they do when they lose their leader, essentially? Well, it turns out they function just fine, right? They are perfectly capable of developing a plan and executing that plan without without Jake. And so, you know, seeing that from his perspective, there's, you know, there's a reiteration of that message of hope, right? That you can rely on others. You can rely on your friends. You're not alone. You don't have to do this alone, which is in stark contrast to what Jake starts out as at the beginning of the story, where he's just like, nope, this is, this is my biz, right? I need to find out about my brother. And that's something personal. And I am going to do it on my own. And he, throughout the beginning of the book, reiterates that thought and is shut down every single time. And you know, thank goodness for that, because if that wasn't the case, who knows what could have happened if he had gone alone. He could have died in, you know, in, in the the first kind of morph espionage where where they enter into the into the hideout and get stomped on and sprayed at and all that. Like he could have died. He almost did. But he didn't because his friends were there. And then they go to you know, raid this hospital to try and take out the Yerk pool. He gets possessed. And again, if his friends weren't there, he would have been taken over and the whole plan would have, would have gone to nothing. But because his friends were there, they were able to key into what was going on. They were able to execute their plan and he was safe. Uncomfortable, scared, distraught but safe. I I think it's also interesting because that duality exists 
you, you know, you have the foreshadowing of, of what's to come in the beginning where, you know, Jake turns into a cockroach and on both occasions where he turns into a cockroach, uh, is trapped, right? He gets stuck in, in glue the first time. And then when they, when they raid the, the place, he gets sprayed and almost dies if he wasn't saved by Tobias. And so there's that foreshadowing of, of his helplessness and being possessed by a yerk. But then also that feels to some extent connected to the way the story ends with a yerk dying essentially of starvation at the hands of these children. And you watch as the yerk becomes delirious and is in pain and crawls out of Jake's head and dies. And it's just an interesting thing that we are presented with such a pathetic and sad description of these enemies right after, you know, that so closely parallels what we have just seen our protagonist go through. Yeah. Can we talk about that specifically? Where Jake is possessed and his friends lock him down and starve out the thing that's possessing him. This whole scene, especially this kind of pathetic end to it, this whole scene to me looked just like a group of friends who find their friend addicted to some kind of drug that they then have to lock down so he doesn't hurt himself and then watch while he goes through withdrawals. Mm. So he goes through some kind of detox, right? Like this whole scene seemed like some kind of detox from a highly addictive drug where you have someone's personality becomes kind of split when you're addicted so heavily to a substance. Um, you'll say and do things you normally would not say and do under, not only under the influence of that drug, but also under the influence of just sheer addiction, of just doing and saying anything to get that drug. And you're battling the other part of yourself in the meantime, who knows that you need help, who doesn't want that for yourself. So you've got these two sides of you battling it out. And this drug addict had good friends who would <laughs> uh, who would do this for him so he could detox. Um, at least that's that's the painting that was drawn up for me for this scene. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of legs to that, right? Um, you know, when when Jake is talking to the Yerk in his head, he he has this this moment. Uh, there's a there's a scene where the Yerk describes what's going on, right? Because obviously Jake can't see inside his own brain, and the Yerk describes it as you know, I have seeped into every crevice and crack of your brain. Mm -hmm. You know, you are completely encapsulated by me. I have all of your memories. I have all of your thoughts. 
I have everything that makes you who you are. And, you know, that is in many ways what addiction feels like, right? It's you're, you're totally overcome to the point where it, it almost doesn't feel like there's a divide, even though there is one, right? There's you and then there's your, your addiction. And it's important to acknowledge that distinction, right? That, that sometimes it's not you that wants something. It's some other thing that's possessing you, right? Mm -hmm. But they feel so similar in the moment. They, you know, it feels like you're the one who wants this. You're the one who, who craves what's happening. It's no, you know, yes, it's, it's your body that's creating the chemicals and all that. But if you abstract it out, right, like maybe that's not true. Maybe you aren't the one, right? Maybe it is a separate personality in a sense. I, I think that, you know, that creates some, some interesting questions, I guess, about who we are, right? If, if this is, you know, if, if this is a metaphor for addiction, right? I think it is interesting that the way the book creates this metaphor is by creating a separate entity to represent it. And that separate entity has its own thoughts, feelings, desires. And that entity is distinctly not you. And you are fighting against this being for your own body, your own autonomy. I love that the way they kill the evil is to starve it out. That the Yurks uh, are starved out after a certain amount of time. And uh, what do they call it? They call it uh, Kendrona starvation. Something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. And I just love that as a way to fight evil. The idea that evil needs to be fed. And that instead of a fight where you have to be stronger than the evil. It's a fight where you just have to stop feeding the evil. And then it will die. Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting message. Because it's so tempting, right? It's so, like, that's the thing is, I think, when we are confronted with evil, when we are confronted with things that, that present us with danger, of some sort, right? Our first instinct is almost always to, to fight back, right? To, to engage in the conflict. I don't have a ton of people to talk to about things like this, right? And so often I turn to social media. And that is a place where people will disagree with you, oftentimes very vehemently. And if you engage, if you try to meet them where they're at, in those disagreements, it can get really heated. It just escalates. You know, it, it becomes less about who's talking and what they're saying. And, you know, can I shout louder than you? Mm -hmm. And if I can just shout louder than you, maybe I can win. And the problem is, is that the next per you know, the person next to you can always shout louder than you have just shouted. And so then you have to shout louder and then they have to shout louder. Right. And it just keeps going like that. And the same thing goes, right. The, the, it's a cheesy saying, but an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Mm -hmm. Responding 
to violence with more violence. While, you know, at sometimes I I do wonder if it is necessary just for kind of that first imminent, like I have to make myself safe kind of scenario. I do think the the lasting solution is exactly as you describe it, right? To to not feed the cycle, to not feed the system. And Animorphs like, has its fair share of violence, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they, they, the heroes here certainly use violence as a tool to fight evil. Um, you know, if I'm using Animorphs as my holy guidebook to, <laughs> uh, to life, <laughs> then I guess I would say that there's a time for violence in order to fight evil, and there's a time to just let the evil starve itself out. Yeah. And the true wisdom is knowing when to use which one instead of always just waiting for the evil to starve out instead of fighting back or always fighting back, even if it's just going to birth more violence. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, right. Imagine and I was, I'm, I'm a little surprised that this didn't happen, but I think if this were a more typical story, there would have been a scene like that. If this were a more typical story, we would have had a moment where, you know, someone tries to slap Jake and, and tries to like knock the yerk out of him. Right. Tries to enact violence in some way to prevent him. And it, you know, it wouldn't have worked. And then they, you know, and, and then they would have defaulted to the starvation thing. I think it's very powerful that these kids chose to do the right thing first. I have a, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the parallels between how Jake is trapped and how the Yerk is trapped? Because, you know, Jake becomes imprisoned in this world of the Yerk's making where he has no control over his body. He has nothing. He can't escape. He can't communicate. He can't do anything for himself. And then we have the Yerk who is trapped by his friends, by Jake's friends. And notwithstanding all of the various attempts that he makes, cannot escape. There is always someone there waiting, ready cannot communicate with his allies. He can't reach them. He can't eat. It just seems so incredibly similar. And to me, it feels almost like the Animorphs are doing something very similar to what they're fighting against in a lot of ways. It's a great question. It's an interesting parallel. To me, it resembles the relationship between a manipulator and the person that they are manipulating, and how they're both, and how neither of them are free. So, in a toxic relationship where someone's being manipulated and they're being emotionally controlled by this toxic person, 
they feel that they've lost a lot of freedoms. And I think what the manipulator doesn't realize is because they are now a slave to, let me phrase it a bit different, both the manipulator and the person that they are manipulating are no longer free because the one being manipulated is of course being controlled emotionally by the manipulator. However, the manipulator doesn't realize that they are also not free and that they are relying on their power over who they're manipulating in order to survive. And so because they're relying so heavily on someone else to survive, let's say emotionally, in this relationship, then they're also not free. So essentially, everyone's losing. No one is benefiting from this relationship, this toxic, manipulative relationship. Both the victim and the manipulator are losing. I'm just thinking we all have seen toxic relationships like that, where we feel immediately for the victim who's being manipulated emotionally in that relationship. But we don't often realize that the manipulator is also losing so much freedom. It's not that we feel necessarily sympathetic <laughs> for the manipulator. It's not that we're on their side. It's just that they don't gain anything. Uh, they're, they're not really gaining what they're looking for. But they, they're not gaining what they think they are. They're still controlled as well in the relationship yeah i mean that's that's kind of the nature of power in general right i it kind of reminds me of the percent of the of the principle of you know consent of the governed right you see it a lot in history with um monarchies especially but also other forms of government where the the governing body I think it's easier to see with a monarchy because that is a single person has to walk a very precarious balance because if they take a wrong step, if they expose themselves in any way, everyone below them will take over, will overthrow them. And so they have to establish their power. They cannot show weakness. There are so many things that a king cannot do because if he did or she there would be revolution there would be civil war etc and that comparison comes up a lot right you know you you often have a story about a prince who must learn that the freedom he expects from his station comes at the cost of freedom and i think also that the idea of of monarchy and and government is a really great example of how that cycle perpetuates itself where the person being manipulated the person being controlled might default to the the easiest feeling which is i have been taught that this is the way the world works and so the only way that i can take any power for myself the only way that i can have autonomy 
is by exerting my autonomy over someone else. You know, in, in the governmental model, that means you have, you know, your dukes and your marquees and what have you, right? Your, your various stratifications of nobility, each one with their own lands and titles, which, is, which affords them power over those underneath them, going all the way down to, you know, a landlord and going all the way up to the king. And each one feels, and the goal is always, if I can exert my power and my autonomy over someone else, then that is one less person who has power over me. And that I do not have agency until I can exert it against somebody else. So in some perfect world, do we bear power? Is that how this works? Clearly not, because... Well, according to our Anamorph Life Guidebook, some people really should not have power. <laughs> the Yurks have very evil intentions with their power. So clearly, some people should have power, and some people should not have power. And then, we get into dangerous territory, and it becomes cyclical, doesn't it? Because now, <laughs> uh, now I've just stated that some people deserve to have power over others. Yeah. <laughs> and then, <It's>... uh, <laughs> which of course is not something I would ever want, uh, which of course is a dangerous and it has dangerous implications for all sorts of inequality. So, yeah, it's, it's a tough balance. It's, it's a hard thing to wrestle with is acknowledging that you know, we live in a conflicted world, but the conflict is never easy. I think to me, that's part of what this parallel points out. I don't think that we should be forgiving of the Yerks. I don't think that we should be, I don't even know if they are deserving of our mercy in this sense, right? In, in that they have no intentions of changing, it seems like. This Yerk is beyond convincing. And so the only thing that the Animorphs can really do is ensure their safety. And that's a tough thing to relate with, you know, to, to relate to, to ethics and to, you know, what is right and good. But it's important to acknowledge as, as we are doing what helps us to be safe, that the people, the Yerks that we are battling against are also intelligences, right? And this Yerk felt the same pain and the same struggle that it exerted on, on its imprisoned. And I, I remember seeing something about the, the way that Nazis are often portrayed and the danger of propaganda where you know we say oh the nazis or or any of the the big villains of history are are monsters that's really great for us because i know i'm not a monster which means if i'm a mon if i'm not a monster and the nazis are monsters then there's no chance that i will ever be a nazi and if we stop and acknowledge 
The Nazis were people who were capable of doing horrible and terrible things. That forces me to also stop and acknowledge that I am a person who is capable of doing horrible and terrible things. And we don't want to confront that. And so we say, oh, these, these villains are monsters. They're not us. There's something different. And I think we see in this that the Yerks are different. They have a different culture, for sure. But we all need to eat, right? We all have aspirations. We all seek something greater than, than what we are. And for the Yerks, that means conquering worlds and eliminating all you know, natural life on them and converting them into desolate wastelands. But there are parallels there as well with, you know, what we, humanity does to our planet so easily. I was going to say we have such a colonial history, you know. Yeah. Um, humans, that's what I love about sci-fi stories where alien invaders come to either take over the planet or enslave humanity or suck it dry of all of its resources. And so humanity bands together to fight against the extraterrestrials because they're the enemy and we're the humans. And I love those because whether intentional, intentional or not, it's to me clearly just a reflection. Is all it is. It's just it's just the creator holding up a mirror. You know, the writer of this sci-fi story holding up a mirror to ourselves and saying, see how it feels? <laughs> see what humanity does? That one group just decides to take the land and the home and the resources of another group because they want to survive or they want to thrive. <laughs> Even if they're already surviving, they want to thrive. And uh, humanity's been doing that for a very, very long time. And are we any different than the Yerks at all? To your point, right? <laughs> it's, it's a tough thing to grapple with. And I don't, I don't know if there's an answer. But I think it's important to acknowledge. It's, it's important to see that the things that we say are wholly evil often have their own thoughts and feelings and desires and that we are not far from those things. And, and often I wonder if it, you know, if, if that is the nature of humanity, right, is, is the capacity to be good or evil, to make the choice, say, I, I'm going to do this thing. And that thing can either be good or it can be evil but it's our capacity that is, that is in question. I'm glad you brought this up because here we are at book six and we're seeing a lot of similarities between the Anamorph heroes and the Yerks and the Andalites. These three groups that are all now able to turn into something else, um, have control, over other things read thoughts just they're just their powers are very similar and it it just does a good job showing your earlier point that 
We are closer to becoming our enemy than we think. And we're more similar to our enemy than we think. And if we don't realize this, then it's a lot easier to become the thing that we're fighting against. Like you brought up against all of these examples of monsters in history. You know, we'll take a group of people and say they were all monsters. And obviously they did monstrous things. But then it's dangerous when we are in denial and don't realize that we could become that monster. I, I like your, I, I think, capabilities, the right words you used. The sooner we realize what we are capable of becoming, the sooner we can work towards it not becoming that. Exactly. And I think it's hard because, you know, like, like the example in the book, sometimes it feels so necessary to become that monster, to do what you have to do to survive. And I don't know. That's the hardest part. I don't, I don't know if it is necessary or not. Right? Just 10 minutes ago, we were talking about how valuable the concept of starving out evil is. But when you acknowledge that evil is a person, think about how, he, how inhumane that concept is. You know, when the evil is a concept, great, sure, yes, yeah, starve it out. What happens when that quote-unquote evil is a person? It's, it's a really difficult thing to grapple with. And I think for me, again, I, I don't think it justifies horrible actions. Say, oh, they did what they thought they had to do. And so they did something terrible because to them it seemed like the only option or it was the only option. But I think it's important to acknowledge you know, that if we live in denial of our own actions, if we constantly justify our, our, our own actions and say, oh, well, it's fine if I do it because I'm doing it for the right reasons. It's not fine when they do it because they're doing it for the wrong reasons. I think that can lead down a very dangerous road that does become monstrous and evil. All right. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Just a Book Club. Uh, I was Rowan Constantine. And I'm Alex Delbar. Join us next week for Animorphs Book 7, The Stranger. You can find us on Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of Just a Book Club was edited and audio engineered by Delbar Media. The original theme song was written by Alex Delbar. <laughs>